Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning. It is Wednesday, November 4th. This is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today, in our second part of the show, we're going to be talking with Dr. Francis Beckwith. He's a professor of philosophy and church-state studies at Baylor University, where he also serves as associate director of graduate program in philosophy and an affiliate professor of political science. Dr. Beckwith was here at A&M to give a talk on law without a lawgiver, why natural rights require a divine source. And we had a very interesting conversation. Uh, As I said, that's pre-recorded, so you won't be able to call in during the second part of the show. But the first part of our show is live, so I want to welcome everybody that's listening here at KEDC 88.5 FM Hearn Bryan College Station. I want to welcome our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena Waco, and a shout out to our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. If you do have something you want to tell us about, give us a call, 85-LOVE-RED-C, that's 855-683-7332. And as usual, I am joined in the studio by our Station manager and general director of the radio station, Dr. Thaddeus Romanski. Thaddeus, how are you doing? Good morning, Deacon Mike. I am doing swimmingly, doing swell. Doing swell. Mm -hmm. I like it. I always like being on with you. You always put a pep in my step, teach me something. Well, good to see you. It is always a pleasure to chat with you. And uh, there's a couple of things we'd like to talk about at the beginning of the show. One of them, of course, is our upcoming benefit dinner. How's that going, Thaddeus? It's going so, so well. Thank you to everyone here in the Bryan College Station, Brazos Valley area. As you may know, we are filled to the brim. We are going to be at the Brazos Center, and we have no more spots officially remaining. We're not selling any more table reservations we're not selling any more tickets. If you still are desperate to come and be in attendance, we do possibly have some spaces at some of the tables that have been reserved already. Contact us. Hit us on Facebook. Call the studio line. Call Dennis. Our contact information is on our website, redsearadio.org. Check in with us. See if we have a space that we can uh, slot you in, or if you know Um, someone in the community, and you want to see if they can fit you in at their table, you can go to our website. All of our table sponsors are listed there at redcradio.org slash KEDC benefit and find a way to get in touch with those table sponsors. And I'm sure that we can, we can work, work you out or work you in, not work you out, work you in. Um, Barring that, if you are still not able to be there physically in attendance or you don't want to be, or maybe you're going to be out of town we're going to be live streaming the event just like Wonderful. we did our Waco benefit. Okay, that's that live stream is going to start at 7 p.m. You're going to go to redcradio.org and there's going to be a great 
banner there that you can click on, 7 p.m. on November 12th, November 12th, 7 p.m., and you can watch the live stream, hear about all the great things that you have made possible in this last year at Red Sea Catholic Radio and in the Bryan College Station area specifically, and hear what our plans are for the next year, next two years, next five years, give you an update on that vision plan that we talked about last year. Michael Foley is going to be our guest, Drinking with the Saints. And I happened to check on the Red Sea Facebook page this morning, and someone posted a video. Really? Yes. What is this novena of drinking? (laughs) Well, I don't think, so as not to cause any scandal, I don't think I said the word novena, but I did say for the nine days before the the benefit dinner, we were going to be showcasing some, some drinks and drinking suggestions from Dr. Michael Foley's books. Drinking with the Saints and Drinking with Your Patron Saints, uh, just to get people excited and give them a taste of what what's in store, because his talk's going to be on how to drink like a saint in five easy steps. And it was, uh, and it's not the five steps that are involved in making a cocktail. It's more, it's more uh, intellectual and deep than that. Well, and again, the whole point of this is that, you know, our faith is so multifaceted that there's lots of interesting things about it that we don't ever think about. And one of them is that throughout the history of the church, alcohol has played a role in our religious orders, Mm -hmm. in our saints' lives. Mm -hmm. And so this is one of the ways that we can touch on some of these things that we normally don't think about. Yeah, and, and in another respect, um, I think the Drinking with the Saints idea is about how our faith is meant to be integrated into the very most simple and basic parts of our life, into our eating and drinking even. And it also then speaks to the fact that we are a, a sacramental faith, right? That the matter matters, Yes, we are not Gnostics. We honestly believe that the physical world informs our spiritual life. And part of that is the pleasure that we receive from the things God has given us. And we are intended to enjoy them. We're doing a book study on the Screwtape letters. And Mm -hmm. one of the comments that Screwtape makes is that pleasure is an invention of God. Mm -hmm. All the uh, demons can do is misuse them right twist it twist it out of shape but uh ultimately pleasure comes from god so this is again a reminder that you know we are intended to enjoy life without focusing too much on the physical aspect of the world and focus mainly on our spiritual life but right we want things to be in proper balance proper order that sounds like i think that's one of the virtues isn't it yes Temperance, Temperance, moderation. Moderation, yeah. Yes. Uh, one of uh, St. Thomas Aquinas's favorite concepts, moderation in everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What one else of, do we have for us, for our listeners, Deacon Mike? Well, one of the things I wanted to touch on is Monday we celebrated the Feast of All Souls Day. Mm-hmm. And uh, it follows All Saints Day, which we celebrated on Sunday. It is actually not the celebration of all the saints that we find on the liturgical calendar. That's right. It is a celebration of all those unknown saints that are actually in heaven. The people that, you know, have not been canonized by the church, but 
are in heaven anyway. And the uh, book of Revelation tells us that there is a uncountable multitude in heaven. Yeah. And so, uh, but what about the people that are not yet saints that have passed on? And so this is the celebration of All Souls Day, a remembrance that we still need to pray for some of these people. And of course, the question then arises, where are those souls? And the church's answer has always been purgatory. That's right. Which is a concept that so often is confusing, even to practicing Catholics. What's this deal with purgatory? So I thought I would tell a story. And again, anything that we talk about in theology is an analogy and not a perfect representation of the truth. But I think this will help people to understand. There was a young soldier who was returning from an extended uh, deployment. Deployment. There you go. Deployment overseas. And he hadn't been home in several years. His home was on a small farm, uh, not uh, a huge enterprise, but a small farm that was working. And his mom had always kept a very neat house, but of course, living on a farm, things get dirty. Mm -hmm. So the house had a rather large mudroom with a shower. Well, the young man was driving very early in the morning, trying to make it home for Thanksgiving Day. And he's a half a mile from the house, and his car breaks down. Hmm. Well, he doesn't want to call and wake everybody up, so he just decides to leave the car and walk the rest of the way. Well, it had rained the night before, and as he's walking to the house, he stumbles in a puddle and falls down and gets mud and water all over him. Well, he's cold and wet, and he makes the journey home, and he makes it to the house, and he remembers that there's a mudroom attached to the house with a shower in it. And he certainly doesn't want to enter the house the way he looks at the moment, because, again, his mother always kept the house neat and clean, and that's the way he remembers it. And so he sneaks into the house and gets into the shower and he's standing in the shower and the hot water is washing all the mud and dust off of him. And the thought runs through his head, thanks, Lord, I'm home. Hmm. Well, that mudroom is purgatory. Mm -hmm. For all of us who travel through this life and we fall down and stumble into mud puddles and get dirt and mud and water all over us. Purgatory is the opportunity for us to wash it clean before we enter the house. But when we're in the mud room, when that mud is being washed off of us, mm -hmm. all of us can say exactly the same thing. Thank you, Lord. I'm home. Because there's no other way to go once we're there. So often we fail to realize that the idea of purgatory is one of the great blessings in our faith. None of us are perfect. None of us will ever be perfect till we get to heaven. And God has provided us the opportunity to wash off, to clean up 
before we enter the place where there shouldn't be any dirt, where there cannot be any dirt. We have to be saints in order to be in heaven. And God loves us so much that knowing perhaps the struggles that we go through in this life, that he provides us an opportunity to cleanse ourselves so that we too might be saints in heaven with all those unknown saints that we celebrated on Sunday. And hopefully we will be those people that others will pray for on the All Souls Day. And t- talk about how the souls in purgatory need our prayers. They rely on our prayers. Well, one of the beautiful things that the church teaches us is that we have a role to play in salvation, that our prayers are effective, that our prayers are intended to help others. And so those souls in purgatory cannot pray for themselves. So our job is to pray for those souls. And we have the opportunity to affect their time in purgatory. And so the church has always, from the very beginning of the church, prayed for the dead because we have trust that we can be effective because God asks us to cooperate in salvation with him. Not that he needs us, but that he wants us to be concerned for others. And so the Feast of the All Souls Day is ultimately a reminder that all of us are brothers and sisters. Yeah, it's an extension of charity, of love beyond the material realm. It is uh, staying in touch with the spiritual realm. Mm -hmm. It is a contact. And so often we focus so much on the physical world and of the changes that we can make here, we fail to realize that we can have an impact on the spiritual world also. Yeah, our, our Catholic faith is so beautiful because we can do more than simply remember our loved ones fondly. We can actually pray for them. Yes. and Even this, after they've passed away. Yes, and this is a constant reminder that they're still part of the family. Yeah. Yeah, they really and they're and they're praying for us. They can't pray for themselves, right. but they're praying for us. Yes. So that, that bond of of love is just so so great. So remind us our listeners who we're going to hear on the other side. Again, on the other side of our break, we're going to be talking with Dr. Francis Beckwith, professor of philosophy and church state studies at Baylor University. Fascinating conversation. Uh, again, a reminder: it is pre-recorded, so you won't be able to call in. But we'll see you on the other side. And we are back, and as promised, we're going to be talking with Dr. Francis Beckwith, a professor of philosophy and church-state studies at Baylor University. As I mentioned earlier, this program is pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take any of your phone calls. I'm your host of the Red Sea Roundup, Deacon Mike Beauvais. And without further ado, welcome, Dr. Beckwith. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. Wonderful to have you here. Now, 
Last week, you gave a presentation at Texas A&M called Law Without a Lawgiver, Why Natural Rights Require a Divine Source. And in a moment, we're going to touch on that. But you're a revert. You were baptized Catholic, left the faith for a while. Tell us a little bit about your journey back to the faith. All right. Well, how much time do you have? (laughs) I'll I'll try to give you the Reader's Digest version of it. Uh, I grew up in a Catholic family in Las Vegas, Nevada. And when I was a young teenager, 13, 14 years old, I was kind of drawn away from the church uh, and was sort of taken by uh, evangelicalism. Uh, It was the mid to early 1970s. And I was very much influenced by several individuals that I had met, uh, actually a friend of my parents who had taken me to a local evangelical church where there was a library and I sort of gravitated to that and read books on theology and still considered myself a Catholic. But towards the end of high school, beginning of college, I really felt that I was no longer Catholic. And I pretty much stayed that way up until 2007. Although I wasn't Catholic, I still was interested, obviously, in theological issues. And so I pursued an education consistent with those interests. I majored in philosophy and then went on uh, for a master's degree uh, in in, in religion. And then from there, uh, attended Fordham University in New York City, where I did an MA and PhD in philosophy. Fordham, as you know, is a Catholic a university, and I left there as somebody who was a committed Protestant, who in fact st- began becoming attracted to the work of Thomas Aquinas, and uh, eventually, uh, into the 1990s and early 2000s, I became more and more influenced by certain Catholic writers, mostly philosophers, on certain moral and political questions, and then. Uh, by 2006 or seven, uh, when I was president of the Evangelical Theological Society, I thought it was time to return to the church. And uh, what really did it for me uh, were three issues that kind of had blocked my way to return to the church. And I had become convinced that the Catholic views were correct. And those were the, the Eucharist penance, apostolic succession and the Catholic view of grace. And all of those views I found so much a part of the church prior to the Reformation and going all the way back to the early church fathers. Uh, and, and, and what really stood out was this uh, kind, of, um, kind of paradox. So the things that evangelicals and Catholics have in common today, the doc. You know, we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, the inspiration of Scripture, the deity of Christ. Those were the very issues, at least the deity of Christ and the Trinity, that the church had to convene councils to settle. On the other hand, the views over which we disagree, apostolic succession, the nature of the Eucharist, penance, and grace, are the ones that were not contested. (laughs) In fact, they were sort of presupposed. in fact, if you read, for example, Irenaeus's Against Heresies, I mean, one of the arguments he gives against the heretics is they can't connect themselves to the tradition, to the apostolic tradition. And this is, so these, so what did it for me was the fact that the Catholic understanding of these doctrines were so deeply grounded in church history. And 
I wind up resigning as president of the Evangelical Theological Society. My wife, who had Frankie, who had uh, been drawn to Catholicism for many years as a result of John Paul II and her affection for him, when I finally said to her, uh, I'm ready to return to the church, she said, it's about time. And so we, I reverted and she entered the church. This was 13 years ago now. I always find it fascinating when I hear about couples that come into the church together because I think it shows that unity that's so necessary for marriage, but also thinking alike and growing closer together. And I always think that's such a grace that we receive from God when we're able to do these things together, especially something meaningful like coming to the church. It's interesting. My wife is very much the artist and I'm not. I'm the analytic, rational philosopher. She is the stained glass artist. She makes stained glass panels and has a really eye for aesthetics. And so for me, it was all about arguments. For her, it was more about the beauty and the liturgy and the kind of the kind of the infrastructure of the church and so it, you know so here in some ways uh, we have you know the very complementarity of these parts of the church that make catholicism attractive for rationalistic types like me and people that as what william james uh, the philosopher called the tender hearted you know and uh, this is why we f- we find all sorts of personality types within the church, uh, which is, uh, I think, speaks well of the fact that we have a kind of a diversity, right? Uh, Yet there's a unity as well. Uh, This is one of the points Bishop Barron always makes, especially in our society, which is so much geared towards feeling. Until we rediscover the intellectual tradition of the church, the way to engage people is beauty. Yes. Because everyone understands beauty. They may not see it the same way, but if it's truly beautiful, everyone's struck by it. That's right. And I think also the telling of stories. Mm. Uh, if uh, you're, you may recall uh, the, uh, the story of David and Bathsheba, most people know of it in the Old Testament where Nathan confronts David. Uh, and he, what he does, he tells a story, right, about you know, rich man who has overwhelming wealth and he takes the small ewe lamb of his neighbor and, and you know, Nathan's, uh, you know, uh, David's outraged by this and, and he says, who is that man? And I'm going to go after him. And Nathan says, you are that man. Now, Nathan didn't come up to him and say, I'm going to give you a moral argument, right? Although moral arguments are fine. Yes. I expect uh, uh, my talk at A&M is about, was about a moral argument, right? So moral arguments are okay, but, and they're good and we need them, but that's not everything, right? We're, we're, we are, uh, we are beings that have, we have reason, but we also have emotion. And that's, you know, I think the church offers both. One thing, uh, I was looking at your website and it says that you're a philosopher who publishes on, uh, and teaches in the areas of religion, jurisprudence, politics, and ethics. Given the current state of affairs in our country and the recent confirmation of uh, Amy Coney Barrett, how do you see the relationship with 
religion and jurisprudence? Yeah, great question. Uh, there's obviously in, our, in American history, there, there's always been this sort of separation of church and state, and it's uh, manifested itself in different ways. Uh, but there's always been a strong component of religion in civil society. And so in the United States for the past over 200 years, this, there has been a kind of uh, understanding that church and state have separate jurisdictions. On the other hand, though, our civil society sometimes will reflect the deeply held religious belief of, of a citizenry. So we have what is sometimes called um, uh, kind of civic deism, you know, uh, presidents and congressmen and other senators, you know, others talking about God, you know, uh, we have on our coin and God, coins and God we trust and, and so forth. But uh, today, uh, I mean, we still have that. There's no doubt about it. But today, the disputes that we're going to be seeing, I think, over the, we've seen over the past decade and we'll be seeing, will be over matters of conscience, um, cases in which uh, the government uh, will have, in some cases, laws that uh, require citizens to uh, violate their conscience. And uh, I think the next big debate that we're going to be seeing, and this is something that, this is my sort of speculation from what I've read in the legal literature, uh, a, a question that people are going to start raising more and more as we get more citizens who are not connected to a faith tradition, they're going to raise the question, why is religion even important? So an older generation, even older generation of unbelievers would realize what they're rejecting, you know, and they would see religion as important. They would see it in art and literature. And even though they may not believe in it, they would still respect it, right? But now we have, uh, in this day and age, I think people that think quite differently. They, they just can't just imagine why religion is even, even important or why it's even special. It's usually framed in the form of a question, is religion special? And I think that's the next big debate. So when somebody, let's say, appeals to conscience, uh, the case that the Supreme Court dealt with two years ago, uh, uh, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, where a gentleman named Jack Phillips refused to uh, bake a cake for a same-sex couple. And uh, the response to that by a lot of people was, it's just a cake. And not realizing that, at least for Jack Phillips, who's a Christian, he's not a Catholic, but uh, in the Christian tradition, and of course within Catholicism, uh, marriage is a sacrament, but weddings have a deep liturgical significance, even ones that aren't uh, convened by the church, right? So, uh, but as pe people, a lot of people don't know that. They think of weddings as no different than barbecues and baby showers. <laughs> and so you have to almost re-instruct people as to why weddings are more like baptisms and bar mitzvahs, right? And so, uh, so there's, I think there's culturally, I think that's going to be the big, discussion. Uh, we'll hear more and more of a kind of, of a dismissal that somehow religious identity is not as important or vital as those identities that are now held up as, as fundamentally important. Uh, and so for that reason, I've made this argument in several of my, my works, religious citizens, including Catholics, cannot simply rely on the law 
they have to actually make public arguments as to why their views are reasonable. Because we have a generation of people that have never actually encountered that kind of way of thinking about uh, religion or faith. One of the things that came to mind when you were talking is, as a deacon, I deal a lot with annulments. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things that even Catholics have a difficult time understanding why someone that did not get married in the church would still have to go through the annulment process. Yes. And explaining to them it is because the church holds marriage to such a high standard that, you know, it makes no difference where you got married. We have to find out what did you intend when you got married. And that's sometimes a very difficult explanation for people that don't see it that way. That's right. Uh, As you know, not only Catholicism, but other faiths have like detailed, sophisticated ways of evaluating these questions, right? Uh, it's something that, so, so the question is, were you really married, right? Or right. Were, and, and were you married in the eyes of God? And uh, there are criteria for that. And, you know, these issues you can actually find in, in, the early, in the early church. I think there's a passage, I forget what book, uh, what epistle where Paul, St. Paul is dealing with the question of, of an unbeliever or a believer that lives with an unbeliever was married to one. And, and he says, well, you could be a means of grace. Yes. Right. And so, so even a, a, in, obviously they weren't married in the church. Still, there is a, there is an aspect to it that, ha, that is, has theological significance. And so I think a, a lot of these, you know, religion and law issues uh, are going to, you know, revolve around whether there's anything particularly significant about religion that is entitled to protection. But I find in a way we have lost a sense of our identity because even declaration of independence, you know, the phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident that, you know, um, implies that there's one truth that had already exist prior to us deciding on them and other that, you know, certainly states that, you know, we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. And so that notion of religion presupposing our identity slowly is drifting away. Yeah. So you were, you know, the Declaration of Independence, uh, where Jefferson mentions, as you, as you just did the, the uh, this idea of natural rights, but natural rights are ultimately grounded in in a divine source. Yes. But we most people today, I mean, I think virtually everyone would would and my my students would say this. I'm sure this is the case not only at Baylor but at A and M uh, and UT. Can I say that here, UT? Uh, uh, it's <laughs> TU here. Okay. <laughs> so uh, uh, you know they would believe that they hold rights that they have that they mm-hmm. in fact are rights holding beings and that the state has an obligation to recognize those rights, which is consistent with, with, with Jefferson's claim, right? So you, you know, you've heard people say things like there ought to be a law against it or there'll be a law for it, right? That presupposes that there's some kind of moral knowledge by which we can assess law. But then the next question is, well, if it's a moral law, well, does it require an authority behind it? Right. We think that about ordinary laws. Right. If I were walking the streets of College Station and I came across a book that said 
the revised statutes or the ordinances of College Station, it would matter whether it was actually authored by the city council rather than some student in his dorm, <laughs> right? The, 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 in other words, the, the, the law has to be issued by, in the words of Thomas Aquinas, he who has care of the community, yes. right? So who has care of the community of the universe? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really the question. And so uh, the modern world, at least this modern world, not the modern world of Jefferson, but the one we live in, there's been a, there's a tendency to just kind of ignore certain questions. Like, you know, we just take it for granted. There's these kind of natural rights that we have that we know uh, that tell us that are ultimately grounded in a kind of natural moral law. And yet we, we never ask the next, next question. Why is it, you know, what does the natural moral law require a, a moral lawgiver? And I think it, the way in which uh, I think issues affect people or how people change their minds is not often the result of somebody having a good argument. Sometimes it's just excluding something as an option. And so it never, it never actually comes up, uh, you know, in conversations you hear, I, I you know, I, uh, I was asking my students the other day, I te teaching in this semester, a course called contemporary moral problems. And we were going over issues of justice and, you know, I said, well, what if, you know, you're treated unfairly? You know, what's your response? Well, that's not fair, right? And I should be treated justly. But what if somebody were to then move to the next step and say, well, why should I treat you fairly? <laughs> right? And you have to then get into kind of the nitty gritty of questions or, or answers like, well, because I'm a being entitled to that kind of treatment. Uh, and that gets us into these sort of these deep metaphysical questions and, you know, you know, generations ago, people kind of took those for granted. And now uh, I think it's imperative that we do kind of re-raise those questions. And you're listening to the Red Sea Roundup today. My guest is Dr. Francis Beckwith, the professor of philosophy and church state studies at Baylor University. And we're talking about natural law and political uh, politics and religion and all kinds of topics. Um one of the things that we hear so often in our culture is, I deserve this. But even that is a question implying that there is some law that says that we have certain things that we deserve. Yeah. I mean, anytime you're talking about, um, or any, anytime somebody brings up something like, you know, entitlement, that I'm entitled to this. Uh, by the way, desert and entitlement aren't the same thing. Mm -hmm. This is often confused, right? So I'm in, I, I'm in, I'm entitled to my bodily integrity, but I don't deserve it, right? I mean, I didn't earn it. Right. <laughs> so uh, I know it's one of my kind of pet peeves. Uh, so yeah, there's lots of things we're entitled to. I'm entitled to my eyesight, but I didn't, I don't deserve it. I didn't like work for it and they gave me eyes or something, <laughs> yeah. something like that, right? So yeah, when anybody uh, makes a claim like that, I mean, it requires justification and that means giving reasons. Yes. But so often, you know, we don't challenge those. Um, we hear, you know, especially in our political discourse, conversations like this all the time where the claim isn't challenged at all. But um, when we talk about 
any sort of moral law, any sort of how do we reasonably get there without justifying where the law comes from? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, most of what we believe about these things, obviously, are cultural inheritance, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, uh, but kind of pushing people and asking them the deeper questions, I think, is is, is vitally important. I, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the whole idea of, of deserving, uh, I, 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 individuals claiming they deserve, deserve certain things. And certainly in many cases, people are actually correct. They do deserve something yes. and they may very well be entitled to it as well. Uh, but I think that there is a kind of um, authority of the subjective where if somebody says, you know, uh, when people begin a sentence like as a X, you know, uh, I have a, I remember when I was an ex-Catholic, I would say as an ex-Catholic, like that gave me some kind of authority. Uh, uh, but the weird thing is, is that, is that we, that in some cases, actually being an ex may not actually give you authority. So, so think about like when somebody is uh, in uh, summoned for jury duty, right? And, and they're interrogated by, let's say the defense attorney, if it's a criminal case, uh, that is, they're, they're interviewed to see whether they will be selected to be on the jury. And they're usually asked questions about whether they've been harmed or injured like the, uh, say, the victim, the alleged victim in the case. Uh, if you say, yes, you were, you will likely not be asked to sit on the jury, right? So actually, sometimes uh, having a kind of subjective experience actually eliminates you from from being objective, <laughs> Yes. Right. So, I mean, these things are, you know, they're complicated, right? And, and obviously experience does, in other cases, do, does give people a certain kind of authority, right? But we have to think these things through. But there is a tendency in our culture today by uh, kind of an appeal to, uh, you know, a, a kind of identity politics, which uh, c turns out to be not so much uh, a catalyst for dialogue, but an argument stopper. And I think that that's the problem, I think, today. Uh, there's lots of things, a lot of controversial questions, a lot of debates that are going on in the public square that I am really nervous to talk about, <laughs> uh, uh, even if I have views that I think are defensible, because I just don't trust, at least on social media, people yeah. engaging in a respectful way. And I'm not the only one who thinks that way. I have friends uh, at Baylor and other institutions, professors who have told me, I, one friend of mine at a major secular university said, I can't talk about certain things in class, even though I'd like to. And that's really a shame because yes. it means that we, we are de denying ourselves the opportunity to learn the truth, right? Or, or even, even supposing you, you know, it, it, it's not just that. I mean, supposing you you know, hear the other point of view, and it turns out you still wind up holding the view that you've held, but you've learned something, right? You've learned maybe to, you've maybe acquired better reasons for holding your view, or, or you've made a friend, <laughs> right? And, and that whole idea of kind of uh, civic friendship has really vanished yes. uh, today. And I think uh, there's been the pernicious effect of, of, of social media, uh, uh, the quickness by which people can assert opinions 
uh, and and not thoughtfully. And I'm I'm guilty having of having done that. I, I I can't share with you. There's two tweets that I sent out for one second and deleted. I, I'm not going to share with you, <laughs> but uh, there you know. So it it is a a great temptation. Um, well, one of the things, I, and um, I find that in my field's theology, but this is tr- as true to almost any intellectual uh, pursuit, is used to when we talked about theology, we're talking about exploring the truth. Mm-hmm. And in order to do so, sometimes you go down the wrong track. Yeah. But that, you can't correct that until you have explored all the possibilities to find out. Well, nowadays we stop that. That's right. We no longer explore to find the truth. Someone will just say, you're wrong. Well, I haven't had a chance to explore this yet. You can't say this. Yeah. But we see this is where social media is so dangerous because rather than saying, let's explore this together, and if it's wrong, it's wrong, and we'll start over, it's shut off immediately. I disagree with you, and then the name-calling begins and everything, and we... And especially in our universities today, if you even pose a question that is controversial, asking people to think about it is... That's right. So if somebody hears something in a classroom or at a lecture that sort of strikes them as wrong, uh, you know, 20 years ago, it would not be unusual. Uh, Actually, I'd say a decade ago, uh, you know, for somebody in the audience who actually may agree with you. And then just raise a critical question like, you know, I, I understand what you're saying, agree with you, but what if so, somebody says this in response, how would you deal with it, right? Or maybe somebody in the audience uh, is not convinced, right? And uh, they, especially if it's if it's an issue or a position that is, let's say, widely held as correct by elite culture, the skeptic in the audience doesn't at all feel comfortable in raising a question. And so that person walks away probably, uh, you know, still holding their views, um, but remaining silent, right? And there are folks that say, good, they should remain silent. They're bad people or <laughs> something yeah. like that. But, but the problem is, is that we as human beings have a, an obligation to be virtuous. And that just doesn't refer to ethics or morality, but also intellectual virtue. And there's something virtuous about actually thinking through an issue, right? And answering uh, criticisms of it, right? Uh, so yeah, there are, there are um, certain, you know, questions and issues that, uh, you know, in certain venues, you just can't discuss. And even if you have doubts about it, right? Um, and you you think that if somebody has doubts about it, the person that, you know, is holding the view should be able to answer them, right? Yes. And so that makes me suspicious that the cancel culture is really a device uh, that is antithetical to reason. That, that, you know, the, the, that its purpose is to silence dissent that could very well have a point. Yes. Well, when I was young uh, in high school and just years and years ago, if you were debating something, the instructor would tell you you had to argue the opposing view of the one you held. 
Yeah. Which forced you to think out, how would I present this? That's not something that is popular today because no one wants to actually think about an opposing view because it not yeah, considered. It's it's very strange. Now, one of the things I do in my classes at Baylor, I have a, I've been doing this now for about three or four years. I mean, I've always encouraged student discussion and, and interaction, but I now have a separate um, category of evaluation, which I call Socratic depositions. And I select individual students. I tell them it counts for 20% of their grade and they could be selected at least one to two, maybe depending on the size of the class, three times through the semester. And I'll ask them a question about the reading and I will pursue a dialogue with them in front of the other students. And I'll push them and I'll, you know, give them play devil's advocate. And it's been wonderful. Uh, I tell them ahead of time, this is going to, some of you, 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 you may have never uh, interacted in public this way. Uh, but this is really important because, uh, it's, it's, you, it helps you to develop a set of skills. Uh, but in addition, it also kind of teaches you how to listen to people. And so one of the instructions I, I give them is uh, the listener should exercise the principle of charity to the speaker. Because today there's, a, there's an emphasis on, on the, the first impression of the listener being accurate. Right. So, so someone says something that sounds, uh, you know, like, like a slur or something negative. The immediate reaction is, is that the authority of the listener ultimately trumps. And that if the speaker says, I didn't intend that, or it's yeah. not, it doesn't matter. Yeah, they're, 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 they're canceled. Right. So what I tell my students is that there is a responsibility in the part of the speaker. Make sure, you know, try to express yourself in a way that's respectful. Uh, but the fact is, uh, not all of us are equally gifted. Some of us are more articulate than others. Many of us have not spoken publicly about some of these questions. So if you're a listener and the speaker says something that rubs you the wrong way, extend to them the principle of charity. Give it the best interpretation you can. And I said, well, that'll do two things. First off, it'll give your your friend who's speaking an opportunity to clarify. Also, it will also relieve you of carrying the burden of bitterness, <laughs> right? Because that's a bad mm -hmm. thing to inculcate in yourself, a kind of, of, of hair trigger listening model, right? You, you, that's not the right way. It's not good for you. It's not good for your soul to actually be going around, you know, waiting for someone to offend you, right? And so they kind of laugh at this and it's great. I mean, the, the classroom situation is such that, um, you know, I've never had any complaints and it's done in a kind of, you know, very friendly, matter of fact manner. And I know other professors that have, you know, similar type of classroom uh, encounters. Again, we're talking with Dr. Francis Beck with a professor of philosophy and church state studies at Baylor University. Uh, your talk at A&M, law without a lawgiver, why natural rights require a divine source. People nowadays don't want to hear that there has to be a divine source if we have any objective rules. Yes. How do you defend that? Wow. Uh, well, a couple of things, a uh, couple of ways in which I um, argue for it. I, I begin by first establishing that 
virtually everyone assumes a kind of natural moral law. Um, even if they say it doesn't exist, they act as if it exists. Uh, and for this, I conscript several figures. Uh, I actually uh, quote from several of the they're not so new anymore. I was going to say the new atheists. They're not really new. Uh, people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens who have been quite critical about the influence of religion in world history. But many of their criticisms are moral criticisms. And so I, I bring up the fact that in order to issue a moral criticism about people that lived in a different culture in the past, you have to have an understanding of some kind of universal moral norms that apply to all persons and all times and all places. I also bring up the fact that our very own Declaration of Independence presupposes these kind of, these fundamentally uh, self-evident rights. And I cite uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter from Birmingham jail, where he brings up um, unjust laws that are not really laws, implying that there is a kind of transcendent moral law by which we can evaluate civil and criminal law. Then after that, I, 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 I move on to talk about the nature of morality. What does it mean when we, when we make a moral claim? If I say, for example, it's wrong to torture children for fun or thou shall not kill or any sort of moral norm, uh, what, what is it? What kind of thing is it, right? So when we talk about things, we can talk about something like a bottle of water or automobile, but when we say, we talk about a moral claim, what's that like? And so I say that it is, it's immaterial, a form of communication. It has a kind of incumbency to it. Incumbency meaning a kind of oughtness, right? So whenever uh, you are kind of moved to do something you think is morally required, there's a kind of tug at your heart, right? That's something we don't get when we're doing, let's say, mathematics, right? Uh, and then there's also a sense of moral pain when we violate that moral norm, right? We'd call it guilt. And so I say... So we have these, morality has this, these kind of characteristics, immaterial um, form of communication uh, has an incumbency to it. And we um, experience moral pain when we violate it. So given that nature, uh, does it, does the moral law require a moral lawgiver? And I give, I go over three options. One, moral relativism. Secondly, uh, a kind of naturalistic evolutionary account of morality. And then the third, basically a transcendent source. That's a mind. And uh, the first one I, I, I don't spend much time on because I've already established or shown that, that, you know, that the idea of a natural moral law seems to be universal. And the uh, appeal to naturalistic evolution essentially argues that, that uh, our moral feelings are, are with us because they had survival value that they, you know, and so our, our, our beliefs about, let's say the wrongness of adultery or murder is the way in, we've acquired those feelings as a result of our, uh, of our genes kind of realizing where I'm speaking metaphorically, because our genes don't realize anything. Uh, they, they realize that, you know, the human race best survives if we generally you know, practice these, these, these moral commands. Uh, but ultimately the, 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 the naturalist uh, evolutionary uh, thinker believes that our belief in the moral law is a kind of illusion. Uh, there really is no moral law. It's just that uh, evolution has taught us to believe there is one, because if we believe there is one, we'll survive. Uh, and so the, with the second uh, 
claim, uh, or the second argument, what I say there is that a uh, couple of things. One, the best that evolutionary argument can do, it can the best that it does is it tells us how we acquired our moral beliefs, but it doesn't tell us why we should be good tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So I could say, look, I'm glad people obeyed this moral law, but why should I obey it? To whom do I have a duty to obey? Right. Uh, The fact that people in the past generally obeyed these moral precepts or thought they were true. I'm glad they did because it helped me survive. That's why I'm here. But why should I follow it? There's no sort of there's there's no kind of authority that tells me how to follow it. Right. And then the other problem with it is that. That morality or the moral law is not the only belief that we hold that's the result of naturalistic evolution. By the way, I say naturalistic evolution because I don't think that evolution is inconsistent with belief in God. What I what I I, I mean by naturalistic evolution is evolution, kind of atheistic evolution. Right. So, uh, so I have other beliefs other than the moral law. I have beliefs about philosophy and art and literature and mathematics. Why aren't those illusions? In other words, why aren't those? Why isn't that a trick played on my mind? <laughs> and if that. If, if that's the case, then why should I even believe the arguments offered by the atheistic evolutionist? Excellent so there's argument. something like kind of self-defeating about mm-hmm. it, right? So then I conclude the only option is that morality is grounded in, it's got to be grounded in a mind of some sort, some authority. Well, it can't be a finite authority. If it were, then that finite authority, if it were like Thor or Superman or someone like that, he would just be another finite being like us. And so it would have to be some transcendent, eternal, infinite being whose jurisdiction is the universe. And so that's a, that's a quick, you know, yes. uh, reader's digest version of the argument that I gave uh, at A&M. <laughs> Wonderful. Now we only have a few minutes left, but uh, one thing I wanted to touch on, uh, one of your books, Taking Right Seriously, Law, Politics, and the Reasonableness of Faith. And um, the title struck me because we have ritual in so many things in our life that we don't think about it having ritual. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the title of the book was fascinating to me because, especially the ending, the reasonableness of faith, yeah. because the ritual to it gives it a certain solidity. Yeah. Yeah, the book, the, the title is actually, a, it's a play on a, a title of another book. There's a book by Ronald Dworkin, who was a uh, great philosopher of law. And his book was Taking Rights Seriously, R-I-G-H-T-S. And mine is R-I-T-E-S. And it, was, it, it deals mostly with how courts and legal scholars have misunderstood the nature of religious belief. And so... Um, uh, the point is to is to is to sort of remind the reader that religious citizens hold their views for a variety of reasons, some of which involve, you know, kind of rational arguments. All and other times they hold it because it's part of their inherited tradition. Obviously, what we believe uh, as Catholics about baptism and the Eucharist are things that we know you know, from special revelation, but what we believe about marriage is sort of combination, right? It's both natural reason as well as what the church and scripture teaches us about it as a sacrament. And so in the book, I deal with a variety of questions uh, and issues. And I, what I try to do in the book is to explain how 
there isn't, there's not simply one easy definition of religion that uh, religion, religion in a weird way includes all these things. It involves practices, which we call rights, but it also involves ethics, also involves metaphysical arguments, philosophical arguments, and so forth. Which is really important today because we do have this dismissal of religion as nothing but the worship, not the actual application to everyday life. That's right. And I think that, you know, especially what we've heard in the news lately, uh, reminds us how important it is to remind ourselves that our faith is not something that we leave at the church door. That's right. We are going to have to draw this to a close. Dr. Beckwith, thank you so much for being on the air. We didn't have enough time to do this really justice. There's so much we could be talking about. But thank you for being on the show. Uh, thank you all for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the show. Next week, Gene Wilhelm will be your host on the Red Sea Roundup. Remember to tune in for that. Until then, when considering the many ways in which you might share your time, talents, and treasure with God, always round up. <laughs>